Committee and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, on the line, we have myself, Jacob, and Megan. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, so the weather is, well, the weather's supposed to be pretty nice today at 26 degrees. At least um, something is good. <laughs> well, I actually have some very positive news that's um, that's happening today. Oh. Um, but before I start, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, we're meeting, uh, well, this free CR is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. So, yeah, we have a pretty packed program um, this week. It's probably going to be, well, it's going to be temporarily our last kind of official sort of live to broadcast kind of program, um, although Green Left Radio is still going to be on every Friday from 7am to 8.30am, just in a kind of different form um, in light of the um, COVID-19 kind of crisis. Um, the station is essentially going to be going in lockdown, but all the programmers and presenters are going to hopefully going to be presenting content remotely, as in some of us might record um, some interviews um, over the computer, send it over to free CR team and then they'll put it um, to air. So that's, but for this week, um, we we're going to be exploring, I guess, some of the different political aspects of, um, of COVID-19 because it's, I guess it's one of those kind of events that had a, puts a kind of ripple into the kind of entire system. Um, while the mainstream media is, is reporting, you know, on accurately, I guess in some ways on the dangers um, about um, COVID-19, what sort of lacking is it's not necessarily giving a political kind of left-wing kind of analysis. And this is where our program will come in. We're going to be doing interviews with Alex Bainbridge, um, the convener of Socialist Alliance, um, to talk a bit about the political aspects of COVID-19, um, what we should advocate for, what are the kind of demands that working class people should be advocating for. Um, and then the second um, interview I'm going to be talking Talking to um, his name is Dennis. Um, I'll get his full name, but he is a, a socialist activist based in the United States, and we're going to be linking in um, with him internationally to talk about what has been the people-powered kind of response um, to COVID-19. How is the left organising? How is the trade union movement organising? You know how are people kind of responding, especially since the United States is probably one of the big, one of the more yeah 
more important countries um, in the sense that it's probably the one that has most kind of ripe, um, has a lack of a universal healthcare system, um, you know, Donald Trump is president and handling and those. And Pence is in charge of the COVID-19 response and he doesn't even believe in evolution. So. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure what's happening there, but we'll guess we'll find out. And then lastly, we'll be doing into one of our regular guests on the program, Sue Bolton, who will be going into sort of some of the more social sort of aspects of the crisis and um, kind of what that means. But yeah, I guess to start off with some positive news, if you play video games, Doom Internal and Animal Crossing came out today, it's coming out today. So for those who are going into self-isolation, <laughs> self um, those are probably the two perfect video games you can probably play and they'll keep you occupied for two weeks. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, as an introvert, I'm, you know, honestly, a part of me is wanting to self-isolate and read books and, you know, learn a language and stuff and not speak to anyone for a while. But it's pretty worrying what's happening. A lot of people in our society now, because of neoliberal policies that have been, you know, chipping away at workers' rights for decades, we have a large section of our working society that does not have sick leave. They do not have paid leave. Um, and it is an absolute uh, time bomb waiting to happen. And we're going to be talking about that on the on the show today. So yeah, stick around. We've got a lot of um, a lot of stuff happening, and we're going to go do some in depth analysis uh, that you won't really hear on mainstream media. Yeah, and um, yeah, probably to give um, I think the latest updates at this stage in terms of the current situation um, is most of the majority of the um, Australian states have declared some kind of state of emergency, um, which essentially means that um, health care, um, basically the political kind of bureaus that sort of relate to healthcare have increased powers in this sort of crisis. Um, I mean, really, one of the, the, the sort of more concerning things is, yep, so a state of emergency has been declared, but there's not any real sort of lockdown. Um, I mean, no. schools, for example, haven't really been shut down. I mean, despite schools being, um, although there is a bit of a political debate about that, but then there is also universities are sort of in the transition of transition away, but they haven't completely, um, closed. Um, and then, well, the most outrageous kind of thing is, you know, there's this state of emergency being declared. Apparently, gatherings of over 100, over 100 to 100, yeah. yeah, over 100, but then going all the way, it, it started off by over 500. You know, mm. that's all well and good considering, you know, the health impacts, um, the risk. But while the government has, you know, mandated that, um, they've essentially allowed say, Crown Casino to run. Yeah, to continue, yeah, because that's a profit-making um, you know, establishment. I think it's all about the money at this stage. Uh, there's no reason why Crown should be open rather than, you know, cafes and everything like that. It just, it's it's a total, it's a blatant... Oh, the cafes are still yeah. open. It's not, not... Oh, no, no, as in, you know, um, they're still open and they're still having people of over 500. I mean, there's more than 500 people in the, in the casino at any one time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just blatant profit. Basically, mm. I think yeah. they put in some measures um, when people are sort of gambling. There's some social distancing measures, so people oh. will maintain a certain distance from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if they have um, a cleaner out having outside that cleans the machines after every uh, you know after every time yeah. someone uses it. But yeah, it's, a, it's quite strange actually. Yeah, um, there's a couple of um, really interesting. Um, 
uh, ha- developments happening overseas. Did you hear about um, Macron in France? French President Emmanuel Macron has put his country into full lockdown uh, and he's declared we are at war with the coronavirus, but he's also suspended rent, taxes and utilities. Did you know about that? This is just a recent Yeah, I, I've been reading about yeah. that. In fact, I'm following it closely. I mean, one thing I politically disagree with is I think that... Um, one of the things about social distancing is I think we should have the confidence that ordinary people, you know, can self-organise themselves to um, be able to do... Oh, sorry. Um, that ordinary people can um, have the means to be able to do it, do so. Um, and I don't think it necessarily... Social distancing doesn't necessarily have to be enforced through, you know, authoritarian means. Oh, yeah. uh, no. And in fact, but I think... Some of the things like rent freezes, um, mortgage rents, those are all things that I think are a step in the right direction. Anyway, okay. I just got to play um, uh, interview. Uh, well, not, not, not interview. I'm going to play a quick announcement uh, and then we'll get ready for our first interview. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. Y'all frogs and lizard, I really know. Mining company, gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR... Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line um, we have um, Alex Bainbridge. Um, Alex is um, the convener of um, Social Science, um, and so we're going to have him on the line to have a bit, I guess, of a political discussion about some of the political implications of um, COVID-19 and this sort of whole crisis in the context of what's happening, I guess, in Australian politics. Good morning, Alex. Uh, good morning, Jacob. Um, yeah, I guess the kind of first question, I guess, what, how can you, guess, summarise, um, I guess, the political situation? I guess what has sort of COVID, maybe the first sort of question we should start with is, what has this sort of COVID-19 kind of crisis revealed, I guess, about the nature of um, the political system we live under, which is capitalism? 
Well, I think the first thing you have to say very clearly, the government has badly mishandled this issue, both in Australia and in several other countries, although it's been uneven around the world. But what you see is the government does not care about us, about ordinary people, the same as it was the case with the bushfires, the same as is the case in general with climate change. Uh, the government is very clearly, their number one concern is about looking after the profits of big corporations and the health care of the population is decidedly a secondary or tertiary issue for them. Hmm. And I guess what, what can you give some examples of how, you know, the government has kind of failed in terms of serving the interests of ordinary people? Well, look, you know, we've known about this um, issue uh, since the end of last year and certainly since uh, January and even early February was, you know, the main the main details have been sort of quite clear. But, you know, the government, you know, doesn't have a plan. Uh, they haven't been, um, you know, there's not enough testing kits, uh, at least that's the impression, there's not enough testing happening in Australia. I mean, compared to South, South Korea where they've been testing 20,000 people per day uh, and then and then following up individual cases to sort of to really make sure that uh, they one know know the spread of the disease and two that uh, the people are getting adequate care. There's nothing remotely like that happening in Australia. No, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Alex, uh, just you mentioned South Korea, which who you know that that's a country that's been doing quite a good job of following up. Uh, tests are absolutely essential in the fighting off of a pandemic. We need to understand where the transmissions are coming from and how many people actually have the. Um, you know, the disease. But uh, here in Australia, I believe, um, I'm, I unfortunately have a lot to do with Royal Melbourne Hospital at the moment where they're doing a lot of testing. Uh, if you don't show uh, serious enough symptoms, uh, they're not testing you. Uh, so you could be a carrier, you could actually have COVID-19, but they're not testing you. Um, do you think that there is a political, um, you know, there's a political element to the, the lack of tests that we have? I mean, surely we would be able to get those tests if we mobilised. What's the, you know, what's the barrier there and what you know what's what's the justification for, uh, for the government to not roll out these tests in such an aggressive manner when we know that this actually helps with regards to stopping transmission look i don't know the exact technicalities of how many tests we've got and how how quickly it is to to manufacture them or to, or to get hold of them but i think the answer to your question basically is that even though our health system in australia is better than some other countries it still has been impacted profoundly by Neoliberalism, which you know really is the is the dominant policy position of capitalism around, around the world, and uh, and that has basically meant that everything is about um, you know looking after the checking the bottom line, the you know the cost cutting measures, the uh, uh, you know you know market mechanisms to, even to some extent uh, in the healthcare system as well, and I. I think that I think that the government has not prepared even what could have been done between January and now, and I mean I, I assume that I mean I, I don't know what the situation was with uh, how quickly tests can be manufactured, but I do know that if South Korea can uh, can organise three thousand tests today, it would have been possible for Australia to do a better job had they prepared properly since January. Mm. Mm. 
Um, what about um, just in regards to closure of schools and universities? Um, I I have heard that Scott Morrison uh, personally called um, the uh, the coordinator of all the Catholic schools here in Australia, which is approximately 600 schools, and actually personally intervened to stop the closure of these schools. Um, can you give us some reasoning about Morrison's reticence to close schools and you know places like universities when we see from other uh, parts of the world that schools and universities have played a huge role in transmission of the viruses? Why is there such a reticence to close the schools and universities at this stage? Well, I think actually the first thing you should notice is that a lot of private schools have been closing or um, uh, or yes. at least you know, uh, projecting to do so early before Easter. And um, and that's, that's already an indication about uh, one set of standards for for the people that can afford to send their kids to to private schools compared to the public school system. Look, I think there's I think there's several aspects about it. I mean, I, and again, it's hard to uh, speculate or put you know exact motives into the into the minds of the government. But I think that what is very clear is that yeah, if you close down schools and you close down other sectors of the economy, uh, that is going to have a, that's going to have an economic impact. And you know, certainly if, if schools are closed, that has an implication for uh, for parents to uh, be looking after their kids, it, it's going to have a broader economic impact. And you see from the stimulus package a week or so ago, the government's concern, you, you can see by the priorities of that stimulus package, that the, con- the concerns of the government are about looking after big corporations, not looking after the healthcare of the population. So I basically don't trust Morrison when he says that uh, you know they're following the science and they're doing the best possible uh, things and that really there's you know sensible health reasons not to close schools, um, and because you look at his overall package is about looking after you know big corporations. So I mean I think I think that's basically what it is. And as soon as mm-hmm. they as soon as they do close down schools, that's going to uh, that raises broader questions about why isn't the government looking after workers that need um, sick leave? Why isn't the government uh, looking after practical things that people need, like, you know, we're going to make sure you're going to uh, not lose your home as a result of this crisis. Hmm. Um, going into that, um, one of the things about this crisis um, has been um, around the question around social distancing. Um, basically, experts are encouraging that basically everyone... Um, um, stays home if, if, if possible and avoids any kind of gatherings, any sort of social activities, although I mean some social activities in small numbers, etc. I mean, they're not completely, you know, experts not necessarily saying to put your life on hold completely, but there is uh, a strong push, you know, that people, if they're in a position to, they should stay home and self-isolate themselves to society for the duration and for the purposes, I guess, of flattening the curve in a sense that one of the issues is that our healthcare system isn't well equipped um, to take these cases on. Um, so there has to be, you know, there has to be the more COVID-19 cases happen um, in our, our overcrowded healthcare system, the more that, you know, someone might get refused treatment for another condition that might not necessarily be related to COVID-19. But I guess this whole question around self-isolation, um, what does that kind of reveal, I guess, about the class inequalities, I guess, in Australia and in the world, especially when you consider that, the major- majority of working class people don't actually have the means to self-isolate themselves. Yeah, well, I think that you've exactly hit the nail on the head. And if 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 what the experts are saying is correct, then we need to have um, you know physical distance and and you know and and be isolated from from social gatherings. 
um, then uh, what is needed is people need to have the capacity to be able to do that. What that means is sick leave. It means the guarantee that you're not going to be thrown out of your house because you can't pay a mortgage or you can't pay your rent. It means that uh, you know, people need to either be able to go to the shops or else the government needs to set up some other service so that food can be delivered to people's houses. Uh, and it, it, you know, it means that people, you know, people need to have those sort of guaranteed, you know, I guess the, the, the confidence and, um, the expectation that, that, uh, when this is resolved, they're going to have a job to return to. Now, uh, all those things are, all those things go against the capitalist logic of individual firms, uh, making their own individual decisions based on their own individual profitability. All those things to implement them properly and thoroughly and systematically require the government to step in to make an intervention into the market. And then especially if it means things like, you know, uh, rolling out, you know, mass testing, roll, you know, looking at, you know, requisitioning what is needed, uh, to deal with the health aspects of, of this crisis. All mm. those things have implications for the government to step in and uh, take control of, uh, you know, various aspects of the economy and put the profits of big corporations second. And, you know, this is, again, I've said this a few times, but it is a, it is a practical question and you sort of you look at it in multiple different ways where, uh, uh, where in practice what the government is doing is looking after big corporate profits instead of ordinary people. And I think, you know, I think, yeah, Sure, okay, if social isolation is what is needed, the government needs to mandate that people have got access to sick leave, you know, income while they can't go out and earn an income, guaranteed job when they come back, and protections about their housing. Those things are... You, 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 can't, you can't say on the one hand we, we need socialisation, on the, social isolation on one hand, and then not provide those things on the other. Hmm. Yeah, it's actually a matter of survival for a lot of people and, and a large number of people now because, um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, this, these neoliberal policies that have been implemented for decades have whittled away at the sick leave and the entitlement and the workers' conditions. All of these things which would benefit, you know, uh, the community as a whole, which would mean that people would be able to, uh, you know, self-isolate. Um, you know, th- this is a, a growing problem that we have. Uh, we, we have the fact that, um, you know, th- this individualistic idea of neoliberal policy, I mean, you work hard and you make money and you're an individual, etc., um, versus the needs of the community. We've gotten to this point where our neoliberal individualism is now harming the community as a whole because we can't come together and we can't work uh, in this situation because literally for some people going to work is a matter of survival and all around the world we're seeing these um, uh, you know quite um, authoritarian responses to people breaking uh, social isolation rules uh, we have I think in Italy they've now uh, charged 40,000 people for for going out um, amidst a lockdown um, you know we can't have these authoritarian punishments without supporting these individuals to actually make decisions that don't mean they starve and that don't mean they get kicked out, um, you know, of their homes. Um, you know, how, what sort of things can we as, as a community, how can we pressure the government to implement these things that stop people from making survival choices and then getting fined for those survival choices because they're breaking the rules, so to speak? Well, I mean, firstly, on the sort of neoliberalism, I think the best examples that I know about that come from Britain, where the 
the public, the National Health Service is uh, is run uh, more as a public service than Australian Medicare system is. And Australian Medicare is still a fee for service uh, mm. system, except the government pays a portion of the fee. That, so that's actually that's actually a less desirable setup than than an actual government provided health service. But but in Britain they have had a you know because of neoliberalism they've had big cutbacks on the capacity of the, of the NHS. So that every year in winter they, the NHS is overstretched. There's no there's no excess capacity whatsoever in the system because they have cut back you know, so much as a result of neoliberalism. Now what that means is there is zero excess capacity in the system for when a bigger you know pandemic like like COVID nineteen comes along, and then you have the the embarrassing situation of the government putting out by tweet, oh, uh, if any company can make ventilators, uh, please we'd love to buy them. And you know, mm. this is a sort of an absolutely ridiculous situation, where you know the government should be able to, uh, you know, well, I mean the government, I mean, well, as I, as I said before, we've known since January and early February that this is a situation. Uh, the British uh, government has provided health service reports in the past about the uh, the lack of ventilators, and uh, you know this is a this is a a problem that was knowable, is foreseen. Not only foreseeable was foreseen, mm. and still they have not taken the the necessary steps to uh, to to deal with it, even though they've known about this disease for several months. And that is one hundred percent a result of neoliberalism. Now, you also were asking about authoritarianism, and like you know, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Queensland. So in Queensland, we've got a situation mm. where uh, the police are going to be checking uh, people to make sure they're sort of self-isolating, and the penalty is going to be a $13,000 fine if uh, if they're not self-isolating. Now, I understand in WA the situation is even worse, like $50,000, and I mean, it varies from state to state, but here you've got this situation where police are involved and there are fines to individuals if you're, if you're not self-isolating. But, on the other hand, there is not the capacity to go and get a test from your doctor or some other health clinic mm, or yes. like in South Korea, literally drive through testing. You can't actually test for yourself. Um, and there's not the, the sick leave and the other protections I mentioned earlier uh, that are provided. So it's a it's a real um, it's it's a it's a it's 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 a way of managing the system which is basically not about looking after people's needs, but, you know, putting in these authoritarian punishments that are, you know, not good for actually solving the problem. All they're good, yeah. is, all they're good for is managing, managing an unfair system on behalf of uh, the big end of town that, uh, that know that people will rebel and resist. Because, I mean, this, I mean I've, we're just at the beginning of this in Australia. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and you can't imagine that without a serious change of government policy. There's not going to come a time when, on the one hand, when the disease gets worse and people need to take more, more measures to, uh, you know, to stop some aspects of social and economic life, but there's not the, not the, not the infrastructure in place to make that possible. Um, mm. you know, it's not, it's not a far-fetched scenario to think that people will, uh, will want to and in fact will need to protest about it and, and, I mean, obviously, from our point of view, we need to be thinking about various ways of, um, you know, of making protest possible. But uh, I, I personally am 100% against uh, outlawing protest in this situation. I think it's one thing to close down a big football match or a big concert or, or something like that. I mean, I think there's, you know, there are there are 
there are cases for some of those measures in you know in a medical emergency uh, but democratic rights including you know including the 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 democratic right you know not to be fine because uh, some government doesn't you know doesn't think you you're sort of self isolating enough i mean in actual fact i mean other countries experience has shown that you don't need a police fine to get people to self isolate when there is adequate income support adequate sick leave adequate protection exactly. of your house yeah. and, and, and livelihood so those are the things that we need to worry about not uh, not authoritarian measures to uh, that basically blame the individual which again is that that gets back to that neoliberalism question it's all about an individual's responsibility not the social infrastructure and the social support that can make it possible yeah now on the question around um, protests and how we can sort of build I guess a fight back I think one of the more interesting things I mean especially as a Marxist and a, and a socialist, one of the, the, I think, amazing things, I guess, that this crisis um, reveals, because we've been sort of, um, the capitalist media has been trying to tell this kind of myth that, um, you know, capitalists and the wealth producers are essential to, um, to the production and the runnings of society. But oh, I think, yeah. I, I think COVID-19 actually demonstrates, um, that it's actually workers, um, that are essential to, um, the production of society. Um, and the one, and they're the, um, and when you look at the fact, it is actually healthcare workers, um, it is the, um, Fast, well, not fast, um, food workers, um, yep. uh, and education uh, workers, supermarkets. Workers, they're the ones who are actually essential to keeping society running in this period. It's not actually, in fact, in some ways, the government is actually a hindrance to actually ordinary people. Um, and of course, it's actually ordinary people who are, you know, organizing themselves to socially isolate at a much greater rate, um, than what the government is acting. Mm. And yeah. And I'd like to hear sort of your comments on, you know, what this kind of reveals about the nature of, you know, the, um, class relations and, and how workers are essential to production. Well, I mean, I think, uh, well, I mean, I think, I think the thing about class relations, I mean, the thing I'd say, I guess, emphasize again is that, you know, I mean, we've, we've learned from Naomi Klein the whole idea about the shock doctrine. And when there is a crisis, uh, the capitalist elite, whether it's corporate or government, step in to try and basically manage the crisis in the, in, in their own interests and even potentially to get policies implemented that are, that are, that benefit them and, you know, at the expense of ordinary people. Now that's what we're already seeing with this crisis as with others. I think that's actually, that's in terms of the way, you know, the capitalist authorities respond, uh, to, you know, protect profits and not people. Now, yeah, I mean, you're right that, I mean, I mean, I think, yeah, we in the socialist movement have known for a long time that it's, that it's workers that run society, not bosses and, and I mean, you know, the number of workplaces you've been in, you sort of say to people, look, you know, if the boss didn't turn up tomorrow, what would change? Nothing. Things would just tick along as normal. If all of us didn't show up tomorrow, everything would stop. I mean, so we know that. And, um, and yeah, look, I mean, all the things I'm talking about, even if we were to have, like, you know, if, if we need, if we need isolation and we need a service to, you know, to distribute, distribute food to people's home, we obviously need healthcare workers. We need, uh, we do need, we do need, you know, a number of services to keep on operating. Um, and, yeah, we need workers to do that. But to make that possible in this kind of a crisis, what we need is you know, mass testing so that people know um, if, they're, if they're sick or not, if they need to, if they need to sort of, um, uh, you know, take measures to prevent transmission to other people. And then, as has happened in some other countries where 
where cases are identified, even if it's even when it's larger numbers than what we've seen in Australia. I mean, like as far as I can tell, there's there's not very much compared to other countries of uh, literally chasing down all of the individuals that an infected person has been um, in touch with to basically test them as well, and then take whatever public health measures. I mean, that, that's the basics of public health. I mean, you know, the, and you know, the public health experts know that, uh, but. I mean, well, the starting point of it is, is the mass testing, which we haven't seen in Australia. should be free, of course. Um, and, and you know, everything else builds from that, and that is not the approach the government has taken today. Hmm. All right. Well, um, Alex, um, I guess we'll kind of wrap it up now. Um, do you have any kind of final comments you would like to make? Uh, look, just I would like to say that it is uh, important that we, uh, you know, we, we do look after each other in this, um, in this time, I mean, like there is going to be, uh, you know, a lot of things come under pressure. But uh, you know, human solidarity uh, is 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 what can work both on the small scale in terms of looking after people in your own neighbourhood, but also on the macro scale as well. And we need to push for government policies that point in that direction. We can expect that um, that we will come out of this. I think, you know, I think what this crisis reveals, and it's, it's a little bit like climate change on a smaller scale, but um, the climate, the, the, the crisis reveals that the government's not, not looking after our interests. It does point to a whole lot of inadequacies in the way the current capitalist system is, point up, uh, is, is set up. It points us in the direction of organising society in a better way in general, both to deal with this immediate crisis, but if we take those pointers and, and look at them more generally, like how can we organise our healthcare system better? How can we organise our... Um, you know, even our distribution of food and you know toilet paper and whatever in Woolworths and Coles at the moment is done purely for profit. If we had a distribution system that was set up for people, it would be better for ordinary people. So you know, this crisis points the way towards uh, towards solutions that will help us in this crisis, but also give us a better society in general. And the only way that's going to happen is if people organise and push for them. Because if uh, if we don't, the capitalist government is going to impose their own. Uh, their own solutions, which are going to be looking after corporations and more doggy dog survival, and you know a less good society for the majority. True words. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thank you, Alex. <laughs> Hope you have a good morning. You yeah. too. All right, that was um, Alex Bainbridge on the line um, from um, the Convener of Social Rights, talking a bit, I guess, about talking about um, the political aspects um, about this crisis. Now, I guess I might just play a quick announcement, um, but I guess in between, um, maybe because this might be the last chance I get to pick a song on the dinner set, yeah, I, might, <laughs> I might play um, a song um, later. Um, and, yeah, um, and we'll be back with you shortly. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! 
Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 7:35 a.m. Um, and we'll probably have our next guest on shortly in a, about a few uh, a few minutes or five minutes. Um, but the first thing is, um, as I sort of said, I wanted to have my opportunity to pick one song um, to play um, before I don't have the opportunity to next week, because I won't. Um, and I was going to play the opener by Camp Cope, which is sort of one of my sort of fa- off, one of my favorite albums and it's available on the FreeCR system, so yeah, I'll be. We'll play the opener by Camp Cope. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, um, and on the line we have Dennis O'Neill. Um, Dennis O'Neill is a retired postal worker. Uh, he is a revolutionary socialist. Um, I think a member of an organisation called Liberate, Liberation Road. Um, and he's also involved in the Labor branch of the Democratic Socialists of America in the United States. So, yeah, good morning, Dennis. Good morning, uh, Jacob, and whoever else is there. Hi, Hi Dennis, yes. it's Megan. Yeah. All right. Um, so I guess the first question, Dennis, I'd um, like to ask you is, can you tell us, okay, what, about what's kind of happening around in the political situation in terms of in response to COVID-19 in the United States? Well, all right. First, you've got to understand, let me just speak briefly, what the the overall situation in the United States is. And the answer is, we don't know. We have no idea. Um, The, uh, uh, as you probably know, the the first big clump was in a retirement home in Washington, the state of Washington, which has spread and caused many deaths and so on in Washington. Right now, the state of Florida has 19 long care facilities for the elderly with COVID-19 cases. 19. Mm. The state has done a total of 2,800 tests for a population of 22 million people. So we have no idea who's affected, how affected they are, and so on. And we're going to find out in the next two weeks, probably, or get the first real idea of just how bad things are going to be. Hmm. On the economic front, of course, like you, we're having a, uh, a massive meltdown. And uh, the, uh, you know, all three major car companies have uh, uh, closed their plants. The largest operator of um, shopping malls in the country has closed all 256 of their malls. So you have tremendous numbers of people who are off the job, being thrown out of work, and many of whom think, because of the way it's being reported, that they're going to go back in two weeks, which is, I mean, that's just not going to happen. Maybe two months, but probably not. So enormous economic dislocation. 
And of course, we've got a lying narcissist as a president. So yeah, and there it is. What has been the kind of response from the kind of major um, parties, which is both the Democrats and the Republicans? What is sort of the proposals that they're kind of trying to put forward uh, or measures to deal with this sort of crisis? Well, it's very interesting. You know, we have the tricameral situation and the Supreme Court doesn't really enter into it at this point. Um, tripartite, I should say. Uh, so Congress, Congress um, and the president have been, you know, largely setting the pace. At this point, the House of Representatives, uh, the lower house of the Congress, um, which is in democratic control, is essentially taking the lead. And they're doing sort of emergency stopgap stuff to try and stabilize the economy and try to put the government onto more of a war footing to deal with the virus. Um, the devil, of course, is in the details. Trump himself, um, the first things that he wanted to rescue was um, uh, the investment banks, which are in trouble, and the uh, hospitality industry, notably cruise ship lines, but also hotels. So this is all, you know, he is totally unreliable for anything. So what happens is um, bills get put through the House, mostly to pump a bunch of money into the economy and to try to get uh, uh, the government to in, put in the War Powers Act, which lets the government um, uh, start industries, take over existing industries, repurpose them to produce what's needed, etc. And so that's kind of where things are at on, on that front. And, of course, we have a two-party system, so that's what you've got. And bad as the Democrats are, and they definitely are a party of big capital, the Republicans are a nightmare. Yeah. Um, Dennis, I've got a couple of questions. Sorry about that technical issue just before. Um, yeah, speak up a little bit, if you would. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, Dennis, I've got a couple of questions. So, firstly, uh, you know, the U.S. government has poured, I think it's $1.5 trillion into uh, big business. Um, and it seems that there isn't really much in the way of uh, money to go directly to the workers. Is there any kind of program? That, uh, that the government is uh, rolling out to help workers to, for the money uh, that, that they're putting into the economy to go directly to the workers. And there's also um, the issue, um, you know, I, I see it as a ticking time bomb in the US uh, of the healthcare system. I mean, the piecemeal way that it is organised, but also the fact that, um, you know, that healthcare in America is so hard to access, but also so difficult uh, to access financially because it's so expensive. Can you comment on both of those um, aspects of uh, the pandemic in the US? Certainly. Um, there has been legislation passed essentially mandating that um, uh, companies and, you know, how this will be implemented and so on, early days yet, companies that um, uh, are not using their employees, closed facilities, furlough people, etc., have to continue to pay them for at least two weeks, and that's not going to be much, but it's mm -hmm. a start. Um, uh, similarly, 
unemployment insurance is being opened up wide. But that is a benefit that's paid state by state, and most of the unemployed insurance is underfunded. So the money for this is going to have to come from the government. And the third thing is that there are a couple of bills in the House that have been put in to give direct payments to every American. And the main one is for two payments of $1,000 each over the course of the next couple months. The Trump administration is counteroffering $1,000 with maybe $500 a child. In the meantime, however, a lot of this happens at the state level or through union negotiations, and we're not a very unionized country. But the – sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Let me go on to your second question, and I'll return. This health care situation is totally dire. It's largely privatized, and even the public, close quote, hospitals are not-for-profits run by executives who draw huge salaries. The history of the United States over the last 30 years is the closing of more and more public hospitals. Today, they try to push people out as quickly as they can. You can get major surgery and go out of the hospital the same day or the next day. So there is very little capacity to take the influx that's coming. Also, even though they're unionized, there's no medical equipment for what we're facing. And even more important, there is no or very little PPE, personal protective equipment, for medical personnel. As in Guangzhou, as in northern Italy, we are going to have a lot of doctors and nurses and aides and orderlies dying. Because they are going – and, you know, this is going to start within the next couple of weeks. Because they are going to be swamped. They're going to be working to exhaustion. And they are going to be working without it. Already, even though it's not well reported, there are clumps of cases around the U.S. in fire departments. We don't have a unified fire service. Every town – in some – you know, they have a public fire service in New York, but it's the New York Fire Department. In small towns, it's volunteer fire departments. And already you're getting clumps where somebody has been rescued, you know, taken to the hospital, and now firemen are testing positive. The next question, I guess, is – you kind of really did a good kind of summary, I guess, of the kind of political situation in the United States and the particularities of that. You and – you have – you are part of – and I forgot to sort of mention this in your introduction. You are part of – you have been part of initiating this group, which is the People's Pandemic kind of response in the States. People's Coronavirus Response is the name. Okay, yep, that's correct then. And what can you tell us, I guess, about the kind of grassroots kind of response, you know, to the coronavirus, maybe starting with 
what trade unions are doing, um, especially since this whole thing shakes up, you know, how the entire left can organize. Absolutely. I mean, we are, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And we also, one thing that we can be sure of in all of this, and fortunately a lot of people are aware of this thanks to the work of uh, Naomi Klein and others and the experience of Katrina, uh, you know, we're looking at disaster capitalism coming our way, you know, privatizations, this, that, and people are gearing up to fight it. In the unions, um, you have two kinds of things going on. One is at the top levels in the unions, um, people are negotiating to um, make sure that union members get all the negotiated benefits um, that they have and to get those extended. Um, uh, for example, in my union, the American Postal Workers Union, um, we want limits on the amount of mandatory overtime people have to uh, serve on the ability to take, you know, we've already won the ability for people to take sick leave without getting three doctor's notes and the kind of bullshit that they normally uh, make people uh, put up with to do it. So the unions are, to some extent, stepping forward on that. The better unions are doing a lot. One of the first to... Uh, uh, really raised this and take it up was the National Nurses Union, who held a press conference alerting people um, to the very poor condition, or the yeah, the poor condition that the healthcare system is in to uh, respond. Other unions are. Um, uh, well, there's a, there are four major postal unions uh, along craft lines, and I just got contacted yesterday by uh, somebody who's in touch with about 20,000 postal workers on various groups and stuff. We're hoping to organize a conference call to figure out what to fight, fight for and how to, how to deal with it. And those questions can be tricky. I mean, I personally... Uh, you know, if you were going to take a strictly trade union view of it, you would say, you know, close the postal service down until it's safe for a couple of months. If you want to um, regard the post U.S. Postal Service as a part of the commons, we are not privatized. Um, we are the quasi-governmental or governmental agency most liked by the American people, 80% positive ratings in the polls, and we're a target for privatization. So I think we want to keep going on some level as long as we can, but we have to talk among ourselves and figure out how to balance those things out and what demands to put forward. Hmm. So that's kind of it on the union front. There have been, you know, strikes, walkouts with people, you know, small ones, semi-wildcats with people demanding protective equipment, um, demanding that policies be changed and so on. And there's going to be a lot more of that. Yeah. The other thing I'm interested in knowing about, I guess, in terms of the grassroots response is um, in Australia, and I also know in the UK, um, there has also been um, a lot of kind of through the grassroots, a kind of mutual aid kind of networks kind of organising. And I imagine in the United States, um, yes. you probably need that uh, kind of work been, done even more and like to hear about how, what kind of work has been done there. Yeah. 
Hello? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Yep. Shit. Just a second. Oh, yeah, I can, we can hear you. We can hear you. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. All right, I can hear you again now. Um, uh, yes, the original outpouring and the thing that, I mean, this, this, uh, thing that the People's Coronavirus Network that we're, we're, um, People's Coronavirus Response is what we call it. Since people don't do blogs anymore, we're essentially trying to build it on Facebook, which involves a lot of jury rigging of, of Facebook, but to concentrate stuff. It is going from two people to 10,000 in a week. And most of the early responses were exactly around how do we develop mutual aid? How do we develop community response methods? And that takes very different forms. You know, some people are extremely concerned about um, the elderly in their communities. Um, people are concerned about, uh, uh, you know, were concerned and still are about uh, schools being kept open when kids have uh, huge exposure and uh, even though their, their rate of serious illness is much lower, you know, uh, uh, a classroom, if you'll remember your second year in uh, elementary school, is a hotbed of um, exchanging, you know, dirt, bodily fluids, whatever you've got. And so, um, you know, those were the kind of things. There's another trend within it, which is sort of more forward-looking, um, people with backgrounds, some in anarchism, some in Occupy, uh, some in the more organized left forms, are trying to figure out how to build um, uh, mutual aid that can be sustainable, not just people going, oh, my God, we've collected a lot of money. How do we get groceries to old people? which is a very good thing and we support, but we want to integrate that into how do we build organization that can do this in an efficient way, um, especially in those many, many places where the government simply is not doing it, and demonstrate that there's a better way to organize the world while we're doing this. Hmm. Um, I guess the next kind of aspect um, is how has this, um, how has kind of COVID-19 impacted, I guess, on the existing campaigning um, that has happened in the United States. And I guess the two issues that I'm interested in hearing comment on, which actually intersect in some ways, um, is the question of immigrant rights and prisoner rights. Okay, let me take the prisoner rights first, because that's the, in a certain way, the easiest and the most obvious. Um, the <clears throat> prisoner rights movement, the, including the new abolition forces, more reform-minded forces, and so on, have jumped into this very actively because they immediately perceived that prisoners were going to be at enormous risk. Um, and uh, indeed they are. So people are putting demands and putting demands very strongly on the government to uh, uh, release prisoners, um, some states have, uh, have um, essentially passed policies stating that no long uh, trials will be held during the course of this. You know, getting the same group of people into the same room 
day after day after day pretty much guarantees that they will all uh, get COVID-19. So that is a, a fairly fierce struggle, and there are some progressive politicians and representatives who are pushing very hard on it. Others in an election year are shying away a little, but we are making a lot of noise, and I think that people's attention has been caught, for example, um, by Brazil, where there have been prisoner rebellions, um, where they've taken over the prisons and then busted out. And something like that would not necessarily be unlikely in many of America's privatized prisons. They are understaffed, the staff is not trained, and the staff is worried that they're going to get COVID-19 too, and they don't think anybody has their backs. So you could get large-scale breakouts. We'll have to see. I'm not predicting it, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Immigrants' rights is an extremely difficult, or not extremely difficult, it's an obvious question. Let the damn people out. They haven't done anything. We've got people in camps. We've got children in camps. Um, you know, deal with it later. And the demand has been put forward. I am not, and people have spoken on it, including political figures and stuff, I am not aware of any legislation on that. And unlike most of the prison stuff, which is on a state basis where you can actually win it, um, the immigration service is federal, and uh, hating immigrants is a, a substantial portion of Trump's appeal to his reactionary base. So I'm not sure how we're going to be able to uh, to uh, bust that loose, but it's a demand that's being raised again and again. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess um, this is a, another question I'm sort of just interested in just exploring. Um, we've got to probably wrap this up soon. Um, but I guess going back to the question around Donald Trump, um, is I kind of want to hear about your com a bit of your commentary on, you know, one of the things I've noticed, um, is that he's trying to push this really kind of strongly kind of xenophobic angle, um, in response to the virus. That is the question around, um, the question of China. In fact, he refers it constantly as the China virus. Um, and then there has been, I also remember during the Democratic debate, there was a question posed to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders that, you know, raised that should China be paying or suffer consequences for COVID-19? And yeah, I want to hear a bit, a bit of your comments on that. Well, that's, that's a big real problem. Um, and I, I'll, let me make a final point when, we, when it's time to go. I just want to say one last thing. Um, but on this, the biggest problem now is that uh, this, you know, China flu and the uh, and insisting on it in the face of criticism and uh, so on is is a pitch to the base, and it has already resulted in an increase of violence against. Asian Americans, and Americans are not particularly discerning about this, so it's anybody who looks Chinese to them um, is being blamed for this, etc. Um, and uh, I think that we're going to face more of this. You know, the, uh, the left, the churches, um, everyone is is speaking out on this and, and calling it out for as racism, which is what it is. 
But, um, you know, Trump has daily press conferences now at which he, the main thing he says is China virus. So that is a major problem. The larger question of the collapse of, you know, the global system of exchange, payments, the whole economic system is now being challenged, not just by this, but also by the uh, Saudi-Russian war over oil prices, which I'm not going to get into, but that's feeding the economic difficulties that we're looking at. So that is a major problem for us and one that we continually address. All right. So, Dennis, um, like to kind of wrap it up now, but I guess, do you have any kind of final kind of comments um, you like to kind of make um, on sort of anything yeah, you've spoken about? I do. The biggest, the biggest problem, and you know, we are at the very start of what's obviously going to be a steep learning curve. Those of us who are trade unionists, who are of the left, who are experienced in organizations, who go back decades in the struggle. All the stuff we know how to do involves face-to-face stuff, involves people in groups, preferably large groups, preferably closely proximate to each other, whether it's Occupy, whether it's picket lines, whether it's uh, mass protests. And we are having to learn very quickly how to mobilize in a situation where to do that would be criminally irresponsible because it would promote the rapid spread of the virus and hence the collapse of the medical system and so on. So everything that we're doing is early days yet, and we're trying to figure it out. But if you guys come up with anything, do please let me know. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much, um, Dennis. It's, thank um, you, Dennis. It's yeah. been a uh, yeah, pleasure having you on the program. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, international solidarity is is as important as domestic solidarity, so let us keep this up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. True words. Yes. Thank right. you. Thank you. All right. That was um, Dennis O'Neill on the line, um, who was giving us a really um, informative and um, fantastic interview on uh, the politics of currently of what's happening in the United States, which is probably one of the more the epicenters of where the COVID-19 kind of crisis is currently hitting in the moment. Although, fortunately, I think in the future, we're going to hopefully be hearing from some other countries, um, maybe um, Italy um, and um in, in the in the future, um, in response to this crisis, for as future um, topics for um, for um, Green Left Radio. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if we've got time, but I just wanted to maybe go through some numbers about what's happening with coronavirus around the world, mm. per country. Yep. I'll yeah. give pass to me that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we all know that um, China is basically the the epicenter where this has started the the coronavirus that um, causes the COVID nineteen disease. So the total cases in China is just over eighty thousand um, people. Just to put that into perspective, so the next biggest now is Italy, which um, the infection rate absolutely skyrocketed. So they saw what was what we call a spike, uh, and that's why they're um, healthcare systems have been so overloaded. So they have um, 41,000 uh, cases. And if we go down to the USA, now remember the USA has only just had 
um, the, the coronavirus come into their country. They are behind Europe, but already they have almost 12,000 cases of the coronavirus. And here in Australia, uh, we're also going up um, ridiculously fast in our number of cases. We have just over 700 cases here. And in Australia, we've had six deaths, but obviously that's going to increase. Um, we, you know, with the fact that our government hasn't enacted measures uh, that would stop transmission or at least slow the transmission, um, that number over 700 will quickly rise. Um, and this is one of the things um, I just wanted to have quickly have a talk about. Um, we, you might have heard of the term um, flattening the curve. So at the moment, so say in the case of Italy, where they had an extremely high number of infections uh, of the coronavirus in a very short time, they had what was called a spike. And so when we have a spike in, in, in a pandemic such as the one that we have now, our um, public health services are absolutely overloaded. And this is what we see in Italy. So a high number of people trying to access the same health care at the same time. So that means a whole bunch of people who need um, intensive care beds, a whole bunch of people who need uh, ventilators and specialist care. So what we want to do is we want to do what's called flattening the curb. So everybody who can do these things, which is pretty much everybody, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds or more using soap, uh, practice social distancing, so, you know, a metre or one, or one and a half metres between people. All of these things help to flatten the curb, which means that we assist our healthcare workers in um, having the infection rate go at a slower pace so that they can better handle it. And that's what flattening the curve is. All right. Yeah, thank you um, very much for that, um, Megan. Um, we're going to move on to probably to our next interview. I'll just play a quick announcement just to pace things out a bit, but we have Sue Bolton on the line. But I'll just play a quick um, announcement just to pace things a bit out. <laughs> 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. All right. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 8.10am. Um, just to um, let listeners know, we did skip... Um, the usual kind of program, um, usual thing that we usually have a program, which is the activist calendar. And just to give um, a reason why, well, the reason why is actually most protests and most events have been cancelled at this stage. Um, and so we weren't, there wasn't really anything to announce really in terms of the activist calendar. Anyway, on the line, we have Sue Bolton, um, who is a Moreland City Councillor um, and member of Socialist Alliance. And we're having on the line, to, I guess, to talk a bit about some of the social aspects of um, the COVID-19 crisis. Good Welcome, morning, Sue. Sue. Hi, how's it going? Yeah. Um, Sue, I'd like to, um, I guess, maybe... Um, we've um, on our show already. We've sort of covered a bit of the political kind of aspects, and I guess you know you as Moreland Council has probably a bit more aware of some of the social kind of aspects and the social consequences of COVID nineteen. And I guess maybe to start it off a bit of discussion, I guess I want to kind of hear a bit of a kind of your perspective on 
these kind of um around some of the commentary around panic buying um and i guess what what the kind of COVID kind of 19 kind of reflects um about that i mean just as i was going into the show i saw at least uh groups of um elderly people lining up at Woolworths and Coles before they'll open and yeah i just want to hear i guess a bit your thoughts on that well I think the panic buying is a result of not just individuals, it's a result of the government. Because the government has basically indicated to people that you may have to go into isolation for two weeks or quarantine for two weeks or more, um, and therefore you need to stock up. So, But it provided no means of guaranteeing that there would be any fair and equitable distribution of goods. So, of course, people went and stocked up, which is essentially panic buying. Um, And and because there was no collective means of distributing goods in a fair way, of course, people living in a capitalist system where there's no guarantee that anyone's going to look after you, um, people did react and have reacted in an individualistic way because that's what capitalism does. It, it forces you to look after yourself um, because there's no guarantee of someone else looking after you. And I think in the case of the bushfires, there it was sort of a different kind of crisis and um, there are, were already um, some sorts of volunteer organisations set up or able to be set up quite quickly in um, bushfire-affected towns, but also, um, you know, especially through the um, CFA, but also even groups set up to um, send aid to bushfire-affected regions. And that's not quite the situation in um, Australia with um, distribution of food and essential services. And... Even some of the pictures of people with, you know, lots of dunny rolls in their um, trolleys. I mean, the thing is, you don't really know. Is that person got a big family or are they just someone who's sort of hoarding? Um, I suspect that there's only a very tiny, tiny percentage of people who are greedy and, and buying up stock to sell at high prices on eBay, etc., and Gumtree, etc. I think, um, you know, what we see is people being forced to look after themselves and their family because the government hasn't properly distributed things. And the supermarkets are not a good means of distribute, distributing things because these are essentially private businesses. So they've got no obligation to um, maybe save up some stock to distribute to people who, um, you know, who are on low income. Um, and, you know, my uh, the reports I've heard of, you know, keeping an hour free at the very early um, hours of the morning for elderly people and, and people with disabilities is that they're still arriving and the shelves are bare um, because the supermarkets haven't been able to um, keep up um, because they are set up on a just-in-time um, stock arrangement rather than um, having um, reserves of stock. Um, I mean, re- in reality, I suspect really to have a fair and equitable um, arrangement in terms of distributing food and 
and supplies, um, the government probably needs some form of fair rationing system to guarantee that especially people who are vulnerable or on not just people who are on healthcare cards, people who are in the minimum wage, um, casual workers, etc., can access the things that they, that they need. So this is entirely a product of capitalism and capitalist governments that just leave people to fend for themselves. Mm. Absolutely. Um, now, Sue, you're, uh, as a councillor, you're sort of on the coalface of what's happening in the community. Um, can you tell us a little bit about one of the things that I am finding on social media and just talking to work colleagues and friends and family is that we have a situation where a lot of people are feeling quite anxious, quite scared. Perhaps some of this, you know, uh, panic buying behaviour is a result of that as well. But there's a lot of people who are vulnerable in the community um, and especially, you know, vulnerable with regards to mental health. Is there anything that the government or councils or we as a society should or could be or are doing um, in order to uh, sort of boost morale and make sure that the mentally, um, you know, the people who don't have the greatest mental health at the moment and are being challenged and isolated, um, and what can we do to, to help them, basically? Well, firstly, I think the government needs to guarantee that the anyone who's residing in Australia at the moment will have access to our welfare system. Yes. Um, there are all sorts of people in the community who um, who are going to suffer incredibly because they have no access to our welfare system. Um, so, you know, some of those groups of people include who don't have full rights as citizens um, include uh, international students who are losing their jobs but at the same time being demanded by the universities to pay their fees. They can't go back home because every country around the world has got sort of travel bans of some, some kind, so they can't go home. So they have to stay here. Um, they've been paying taxes <laughs> to Australia, um, but they're losing their jobs. But they have no, because a lot of them work in hospitality or the areas that are um, going to suffer the hardest under this um, COVID-19, and they've got no access to welfare. Um, they're also New Zealanders who arrived in Australia since the laws were changed Um uh, can't remember when that was, maybe the 80s or early 90s, where they have no access to welfare rights. They've got uh, they've got on a special visa arrangement so that they can um, live and work in Australia, but they don't have access to welfare. Their kids don't have access to HECS, and they're not able to become permanent residents. Then you've got people on, um, you know, various um, temporary work visas who also, um, you know, usually if they lose their jobs, they face deportation. And then you've got tourists um, and, you know, and asylum seekers who don't have full rights. So basically the protections of Medicare and welfare should be extended to every single person who's in Australia at the moment. And every country around the world should be doing that as well. We should not be paying... International, forcing international students or people who don't have access to our system to pay for hospital care, pay upfront fees for hospital care and medical care. Um, 
so I think we've got to shift society away from a profit-driven society to a care-for-our-fellow-humanity kind of society. Um, I'm especially worried about uh, people who are homeless during this period and people who could be yes. made homeless by ruthless landlords. And also the um, reports coming out of Wuhan in China are that um, domestic violence or violence against women uh, tripled uh, during the lockdown because women were forced to spend a lot of time with their abusers. They were locked in a small space with their abusers. And I'm very worried about that aspect, um, in particular because we don't have enough housing. And I actually think this is the time when the government should requisition vacant dwellings and be going full steam to build new permanent dwellings, public housing dwellings, and as well as temporary um, temporary accommodation for people who are homeless or need to flee um, abusive situations. Yeah, on the question around um, rent protection and um um, housing. Um, interestingly enough, um, the UK um, has just announced sort of um, mortgage freezes or some kind of mortgage freeze, um, you know, um, system um, for three months. But I guess the main issue with this essentially is um, just reading between the lines is essentially it gives equal weight to both landlords and um, and renters. And so, in some sense, that basically. They could put um, they could put um, evictions on hold for three months, but then the the landlord might ha- be put in a position where once the crisis is over, um, renters will be stuck with lots of debt of all this kind of unpaid rent. Um, so I think you know it doesn't necessarily seem to be a, a step forward in that sense. And I guess what would your ideas be on you know protecting the rights of tenants in this sort of um, um, period? Well, I think there should be, um, they should introduce a law against evictions, uh, to prevent evictions altogether. Um, I also think that you possibly need to differentiate between different types of landlords. Um, this is, um, just thinking off the top of my head because I think there are, um, you know, there's, you know, the landlords who own lots of properties, absentee landlords raking in the cash from all of their properties, et cetera. Um, but there are some landlords who are workers, you know, who've worked all their lives. Maybe they have bought an investment property and maybe they've lost their jobs or, um, you know, have got some illness which, or, or, you know, cancer or whatever that prevents them from working. So I sort of, um, I have a feeling you do need to sort of have some sort of means of sort of differentiating. Um, but I, on the other hand, I do think um, people need to be protected. Um, and I think there should be no evictions in this period. That should be a guarantee of no people being evicted in this period. Um, no bank for, foreclosures on... Um, on uh, people who can't afford to pay their mortgage, no evictions for people who can't afford to pay their rent. Um, And I think, um, especially 
landlords who, um, you know, especially landlords who have multiple properties um, and landlords who've got other means of income and the rent is just, you know, you know, pocket money <laughs> for spending money on top of their other incomes should be um, should be forced to just relinquish, uh, you know, um, forego any rent in this um, in this period um, for several months uh, until um, we're on top, you know, we've passed this virus. Because people, the handouts are primarily going to business; they're not going to. Um, workers and people who are unemployed and, and pensioners, you know, sure, tiny few little scraps are going um, towards people who are on pensions and benefits. But the most important thing the government is not doing is increasing New Start back to the up to the poverty line. Um, that will be a start. And New Start is something like 150 or $180 below the poverty line. It is so low. Um, but the government does not want to create a precedent of increasing this payment permanently ongoing. So that's why they're just doing a one-off $750 payment. They do not want to increase this permanently, and it needs to be increased permanently. And I think we've got to try and win back, use this period of this crisis, which shows up how rotten this capitalist system is, to win back our rights, to win back permanency of secure work, not um, not this casualised hand-to-mouth existence that so many workers have, um, win back our rights to an adequate welfare system so that when we're forced out of work, we've got a system to rely on, which we've paid our taxes for. Um, we need to win back our rights to um, permanent secure housing and I think we need to really push this. And so while we've been pushed to campaigning in an online world, we can't give up actually campaigning. And we've got people like Alan Joyce who earns, you know, something millions of dollars every year. Why isn't he giving that money to the Qantas workers? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. Oh, you want to wrap it up? Well, yeah. Um, so, so is there anything that you... We're going to be wrapping up uh, the interview now, but is there anything that we haven't gone over or anything, anything sort of that you want to uh, um, emphasise? Well, I think those are probably the key things, and I'm especially concerned about people who are homeless in this situation because home, a lot of homeless people... Um, uh, you know, whether people are moving from couch to couch in friends and families' um, houses and flats or whether people are living rough on the streets, in their cars, wherever, um, or people who are in um, insecure housing and so forth, I think are the most at risk in this situation. So really wealthy people in a position to look after themselves um I, I think um you know they will have they will get special deliveries from uh, food suppliers and all the rest of it they will not be suffering it is ordinary people who are suffering and people who are poor can't afford to stock up um because you get so little such little income 
to um, last you, well, it doesn't even last you the fortnight. So homeless people are the most vulnerable, people who are in insecure housing, most vulnerable, and we've got to use this period to really fight for a massive expansion in public housing, which they could do right now during the crisis. Right. Thank you very much, Sue. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. That was um, Sue Bolton. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll have to wrap up um, the show now. Um, thanks for all your listeners um, for hope um, for temporarily what will be our last live to broadcast program. But we will be on air next week from seven to a.m. to eight thirty a.m. Um, just in a different format. Um, I can give you kind of announcement of what's coming up. We're going to be playing a recording of a public forum that um, was organised recently. Um, violence against um, capitalism and violence against women. Um, so that's going to be one thing that is going to be on our show next Friday. So hope you tune in um, and, yeah. Hope and, s- yes, take care, listeners. Um, keep your spirits up and uh, make sure that you look after each other. Yep, and keep up the fight. <laughs> yes. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? 